presence. Just going to read, as has been mentioned from Psalm 150. Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's just pray. Father, we just want to ask that as we come into your presence tonight, that you'll show us clearly where joy in life is to be found and how we can live in the the fullness of that experience of joy that's your desire, not just for a few, but for everyone who trusts in you. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, perhaps some who are here tonight, perhaps as, as this psalm began to be read, you maybe began to have questions in your mind about just how this psalm fits, just how appropriate this psalm is in the context of the, the subjects we've been looking at from the psalms over the, the last few weeks. Depression, guilt, worry, fear, anger, doubt. And if you're just visiting, by the way, I just want to say I'm really a very cheerful person normally. And also, in the context of the the world situation we find ourselves in today. Well, there's a psalm. A psalm that's all about praise, worship, joy. Is a psalm like Psalm 150 really all that appropriate in this context? Well, you know, I can understand that as a first glance, initial reaction to this psalm. In that, if this psalm were a one-off, set by itself, in isolation, then it would be possible, in fact almost inevitable, to interpret this as a call to ignore your sorrows. To just forget your worries and your troubles, your fears and cares, and, and bury them in a avalanche of emotion, of frenzied praise. And that would be superficial, inappropriate, and insensitive. For most of us, I'm sure, know, and some of us perhaps to our cost know, that that things, and particularly with regard to the inner life, that things that are ignored don't just go away. And that which is buried never stays buried for very long. But far from being inappropriate. I believe there could actually be nothing more appropriate to preach on tonight than this particular psalm. Why? Well, because this psalm is not set in isolation. Far from it. It's the last psalm of 150 psalms. And these psalms, as we've got a taste of over the last few weeks, very much set out for us. The author, David's life journey his spiritual pilgrimage, to use a popular phrase today. And as we've seen, this is a pilgrimage that, that reveals that David was a man who knew more than his fair share of sorrow, of fear, of failure, of heartbreak and disaster. That he was a man who certainly made his mistakes. 
But what is also revealed is that David didn't hide his sorrow or fear. That he didn't ignore his failure and heartbreak. No, rather he brought these things right out into the open and dealt with them before God. So in the light of this then, I would want to say that this psalm here isn't the superficial praise of someone who uses what in fact is not really praise as a means of facing up to and avoiding dealing with the harsh realities of life. No, rather this to the contrary is the legitimate outbreak of praise to God of a man who has faced up to life and who in God, in his relationship with God, has found the strength to overcome. So you see, this psalm isn't a one-off exercise in escapism. No, it's the expression of a man's whole philosophy, if you like, of life. It's an expression of the key to what is a truly triumphant spirituality. In the face of life, with all its heartbreaks, all its sorrows, all its disappointments, could there be a more relevant word than this in our day? And it's also relevant in what by implication it also has to say about one of the most misunderstood subjects, I think, among Christians in the days that we live. And we've already touched on it. And in fact, the kind of praise that we find here is really nothing other than an expression of this, an expression of Christian joy. For you see, Christians, to me, often seem to split into two distinct camps with regard to joy. First, we have the mainly evangelical Christians who are often parodies as having a deep, deep joy. And these are the kind of people who are always talking about the fact that their joy is in the Lord. That their joy is in what Jesus has done for them. And yet the problem is that so often they never seem to get round to really expressing that joy. Their joy is indeed a deep, deep joy. It's so well hidden that unless they tell you they've got it, you would probably never know. You know, the kind of people you'd almost love to ask the question, are you joyful? And then when they answer yes, come back with the response, then isn't it about time you told your face? But then we have those who parody the deep, deep joyers, and who by contrast and reaction, who are more than willing to express their joy. And we, we can all know, don't we, this type of Christian The Christian who's always on the lookout for a a praise session. The Christian who always likes their worship, full volume, high speed. Now, let me say that I have no problem with someone who, in a way that is natural to them, expresses their joy to the Lord. Not at all. So long as in doing so, they're sensitive to others. But you see, what I have sometimes found is that there are a number of people, by no means all, but a number of people here whose joy seems to actually be confined to mainly the worship situation and who don't appear to exhibit much joy or indeed any of the other Christian graces in the rest of their ordinary day-to-day life. You see, there's not much 
love, not much patience, not much perseverance, and we could go on to be seen in the rest of their life. And certainly, even their joy at times seems to rapidly evaporate whenever it's challenged in some way by one of life's inevitable, unavoidable times of trouble. Okay, so on the one hand then, we've got a joy that's said to be of depth, but that's not really expressed. And then on the other hand, we have a joy that is expressed, but that seems to have no real roots. The right biblical balance, though, I believe, is for us to seek to have a joy that's firmly established in the Lord, in His goodness and what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. As, for example, we, we find in the, the definition of joy that's there in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, this is what it says, joy is a delight in life that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. Not limited by or tied solely to external circumstances. A gift of God. A quality of life and not simply a fleeting emotion. The fullness of joy comes when there is a deep sense of the presence of God in one's life. Jesus made it clear that joy is inseparably connected to love and obedience. But you see... With this joy then being expressed both in our worship and in the way that we go on to live our day-to-day lives. Now, you see, this is the kind of quality of joy that I believe David the psalmist possessed. And that it's this quality of joy that here in this Psalm 150, he expresses in praise. Now, do you want to know more about this kind of joy and praise? More about how it can be yours and also how it can be lost. About how and when it should be expressed. If you do, and I believe if you're a believer you should, then just join with me now in looking at this psalm. First of all, looking in verse 1 at the where of praise. The where of praise. That is, praise the Lord. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Now basically what this is, is a call to God's worshippers on earth, meeting at His chosen place, and also to His heavenly host, who even now gather round the throne of the Lamb. It's a call to them, to mingle, to join their praises together as one. For as Derek Kidner, as he says here, his glory fills the universe. His praise must do no less. Now that's basically, fundamentally, what verse 1 says. I'd just like to make the one or two practical observations arising for this. And that is, we often talk today about the priority of worship being that we worship in spirit and in truth. And of course, that's right and that's true, as Jesus made clear in John 4. Therefore, it is true 
that we can worship God anywhere and at any time as individuals. Provided we approach him in spirit and in truth. However, the Bible, New as well as Old Testament, also stresses the importance, in addition, of us gathering together in one place at least, at least each Lord's Day for worship. Now, of course, this also has to be done in spirit and in truth. Because without this, our worship just becomes a ritual. It just becomes something that we do, somewhere that we go, but something that's devoid of any real meaning and that therefore is spiritually worthless in God's sight. However, the Bible does see as important and God does command that God's people, his people, gather together in one place for worship. So why? What are the reasons for this? Why does God see it as so important? Well, there's the the fellowship dimension, first of all, that's well testified to by that old illustration of what happens to a single coal if it's taken out of the, the blazing fire. And the answer, of course, as we know, is that very quickly that single coal, its own fire, dies away. The point being that we need fellowship. That we need to come together for mutual encouragement in order to keep the the flame of our faith burning brightly. Then there's also witness. The real witness that it is to the world of the power of this gospel we proclaim when as a group of people so obviously so diverse in age and temperament and background etc. And yet who because we are one in Jesus Christ, are ready to gather together, to come together, to demonstrate that great unity in worship. Another related reason why I believe worshiping together is so important is because there's power. There's real power. The release of the power of God when God's people meet together to truly worship Him. Yes, as our worship joins with heaven's worship, and as by that God is then blessed and pleased, so power is released. Now those are just a few of the reasons that I could give as to why I believe God commands that we gather for worship in one place. But enough, I hope, to help you understand why I'm saddened, and I'm sure many others are saddened today, at the way that sometimes, in these days, this is treated so lightly and flippantly. The warning of Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the gathering together, seems to be one that, that so many Christians now find it conveniently easy to ignore. Say it again. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, even in those early days. But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. But but why is this so? Well, as I've said, I'm sure before, I believe today is a day 
of reaction. That's the day that we're living in, a day of reaction to the old legalism of the past, which included within it the, the kind of worldview that for an evangelical Christian to miss a service was seen as something almost akin to the unforgivable sin. Miss one service and you are under suspicion of backsliding. But now though, today, you see many Christians say, well, I've got liberty now. And if I don't go to church, well, that's no real hassle. That's no big deal. That's my choice. Well, of course, that's true. If we've got a valid reason for not attending worship rather than an inadequate excuse, and I've seen, I've, sorry, I've heard the difference between the two being defined as a reason, is something you'd be happy to say before the face of the all-knowing Jesus. But of course, if we've got a reason, our lack of attendance at worship just isn't something that God holds against us. However, if God's grace is presumed upon, if His grace is used as a license for a lack of discipline, for an ignoring of one of the valid claims, I believe, of God's Lordship, well then that, it seems to me, is something different altogether. Because you see, when we commit ourselves to Christ and therefore commit ourselves to His church, part of that commitment, and this is just part of it, involves a commitment to worship. You see, that's part of the covenant responsibility, the promised relationship that we take upon ourselves when we take Jesus Christ as Lord. But you see, if we kind of play fast and loose with our responsibility, our part of the bargain, then what should we expect? Well, I would ask you to remember what that definition of joy that we shared earlier, what it said. And that is that Jesus made it clear that joy is inseparably connected to love and obedience. Listen then to Scripture that backs that up, John 15, 10. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's command and remain in His love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Now you see, what this seems to me to suggest is that if we fail in our responsibility to God, at this most basic level, if we fail here, well then we shouldn't be too surprised if this has an impact on our enjoyment of His blessing. For in the Bible, fulfillment of responsibility and enjoyment of blessing go hand in hand. So you say, people say at times, I'm not knowing any joy in the Christian life. I'm not fulfilled in the Christian life. In the way that I thought I would be. In the way maybe that I used to be. You know, my first thought is, is that person living in obedience 
to their Lord. And one of the first things I look at is, are they there at worship? Are they among God's people? For if that's not right, then what most often this is indicative of is a more deep-rooted failure, I believe, to really bow the knee to God as Lord of our life in every area. And certainly part, at least often, I believe, in at the beginning of the solution to our problems lies in our getting our life right in this area. So we've looked at the where of praise. Let's move on in verse 2 to look at the why of praise. The why of praise. And for many of us, this really is the big question, isn't it? Why praise God? Why praise Him on a day when maybe our minds are dominated by sadness regarding the past? And when we look around our world today, fear and anticipating the future. Why praise God? Why praise Him? When maybe in many different ways our lives and our faith seem to be under assault in the days in which we live. And we're perhaps personally maybe living in fear of falling apart spiritually, falling apart in every way. We feel as if our life is unraveling. So why praise Him? Why praise God? I believe because truly turning to God in praise changes our whole perspective on life and all it involves. For what happens? What happens when life's falling apart and we praise God? First of all, like David, we remember who he is. That he's the God here in verse 2. The God of all surpassing greatness. Yes, we remember that our God is the God of might and majesty. The God of grace and glory. That he is the God who is the Lord. And so you see then, we, we realize that dire though our circumstances might be and continue to be. Yet still, he is the Lord. Still, he is in ultimate control. And he cares. He cares for me. He cares about you. And then we remember and praise him also in verse 2 for his acts of power. Now you see, when we think of, of God's acts of power, what do we think of? Well, I'm sure many different things. But surely, primarily, we should be thinking. And biblically, we should think of God's great saving acts. God's great saving acts. His acts of salvation. And for us as Christians, we think of how he sent Jesus to die for us. How he showed his love for us in that way, undeserving as we are. And we think of how by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we came to see and to apply that act to ourselves and know salvation, to know ourselves, to be saved in and through Jesus Christ. And then we go on to think of the, the many times in our lives subsequent to this. Times when we've been in difficult situations, when our back's been against the wall. Times when we've known ourselves to be at the end of ourselves, of our resources. But then God has stepped in. He's acted. He's either given us the strength that we need to cope with our situation 
or he's rescued us from our situation. But in one way or another, he has saved us. So you see, it's as we turn to God in genuine praise. And as we then remember who our God is and what it's done, well, it's then that our whole outlook on life changes, or at least it begins to change. Now, as we said at the very beginning, when we set this psalm here in its context, within the, the book of Psalms and within the, the life of David, then this isn't something academic that we're talking about here. This is something that David did, something that David worked out practically in his life experience. For time and time again in his life, David found himself in life-threatening situations. For example, hunted in his early life by Saul, or he found himself in heartbreaking situations, grieving at the death of his rebellious and yet still beloved son, Absalom. And David didn't hold back. He didn't. He told God all about his sorrows and fears. He told God all about his doubts. Indeed, at times, he seemed to to teeter on the edge of, of faithlessness, on the very verge of just turning his back on God and his people. But then, and again and again, he remembered. He remembered that his joy was in the Lord. He remembered that his joy was in who his God is and what his God has done, and that nothing in this world could take that away, that his God would never desert him. And so then, although his circumstances certainly didn't always immediately change, they didn't. Yet David's outlook on them, David's perspective on them, and certainly his ability to deal with them. That changed. And at times, I'm sure, almost before he knew where he was, though at other times, equally, I'm sure, there's maybe weeks and months even of struggle gathered up in a few verses of some of these psalms. Yet David, again and again, found himself praising. And if you want one of many examples of this, then how about Psalm 13? Where David begins this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? Every day it went on and on. And yet, this psalm ends. But I trust. In your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. Maybe though tonight you're at that point in your life where you can shout out with gusto the first part of Psalm 13. But where those words of praise at the end just seem to stick in your throat. And yet you long to be able to say these words with David. You long tonight to be able to see things, to see life from a changed perspective. You long to be able to begin to climb out of your valley of despair. Well, I want to tell you tonight that I've got no easy answers. I really haven't. But what I will say is this. 
that so often it appears to me that again here, God's lordship is the crucial issue. That it's as we realize that our joy is in the Lord. It's as we remember again that in Him, in what He's done, in that salvation that can never be lost, that we have what really matters, no matter what's going on around us or within us, in the world, whatever. Well, then it's then that what we've just spoken of can begin to happen. It's then. I fear, though, that too often it's the fact that, that God's lordship is still in our sins academic, that we're working through that to a deep reality, but it's this that prevents this kind of process happening. We say that God is our Lord, but at times we need to be purged of a lot of pride in our hearts. A lot of self-sufficiency has to be broken before we really can truly live with him as Lord and so enjoy the joy of the Lord. Well, next and more briefly, I want us to, to look at the how of praise in verse 3 to 5. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with tambourine and with dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Now, you know, the instruments that are mentioned there, they're not just random. They actually cover every aspect of the Israelites' life then. The trumpet was the curved ram's horn used for ceremonial state occasions. The timbrel and, and the dance were the instrument and activity that was most associated with celebration, with party time, if you like, say following a great victory in battle. Whereas the flute was more the, the simple, everyday instrument, as was the harp. It was the kind of thing that a shepherd boy, as David had been, would take with him to play in the solitude of the hills. So the basic idea here then seems to be Praise God with everything you've got. Praise Him with everything you've got, with all that you are. And I believe that that's right. According to our personality, our background, culture, circumstances, we should, each one of us, praise God with everything that we've got. You know, there's one thing that I especially value seeing in the life of the people of God. And that's when you find a people, and you see it again and again, who though diverse in temperament and tradition and taste and where we're at in our life's journey, yet God's people were able to come together and to share in a common expression of worship. Where you find a people where some would probably personally pray a more contemplative and traditional form of service, and others want it more contemporary and informal and full on. But recognizing that what we have together in Christ in common is far more important than any differences. So out of a love for one another, giving to one another, we're able to come and to worship together. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that's the a true expression of the grace of God at work among his people. 
I think that kind of love, that kind of self-sacrifice, that kind of mutual self-submission really is a true expression of what lies at the very heart of the gospel. It's Paul's words in Philippians 2, 3, lived out in humility, in Christ-likeness. Consider others better than yourself. Put their needs before your own. And this doesn't mean that that we can't give our all in worship. And this doesn't mean that we've got to worship the way everyone else worship. No, what it means is that we're sensitive to one another as we express our worship. But I also think that these different instruments that were used in such varied settings and circumstances here, that they also communicate to us. Not only that you should praise God with everything that you've got, but also that you should praise Him everywhere you go. Because you see, while it's right and essential that we should gather together to worship our God on the Lord's day, and that's right, and I've emphasized that, but you know, if ever we restrict our worship to that, if ever we begin to think that worship for us is just an hour or so on a Sunday, then that's also wrong and tragically sad, and even more, it's spiritually dangerous, both for us and for those who are misled as they look at our lives. Rather, we should live seeking to praise God in the way that we live every moment of every day in every single area of our life. It should all be a shout of praise to the world, home, school, work, the whole of our life, all of our living should be an act of worship to God. We should do it as an offering to Him. Just to finish, who can praise? Verse 6 gives the answer. Everyone. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You see, our God wants this kind of quality of joy. He wants this kind of reality of praise this basic kind of quality of life. He wants this, not just for some select band, not just for a few spiritually mature and advanced. God wants this for all His people. He expects this to be the experience of all of His people. This is the baseline. The question is, are you ready tonight to be really open and honest with God? Are you ready tonight to really live in submission to Him as your Lord? Are you ready, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, to turn to Him again, to trust in Him? If so, then get ready, because you're going to know joy. And you're going to be able to praise the Lord out of a heart filled with true joy. Let's do it. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Ali's now going to lead us in our closing song.
great song to finish, um, nice and upbeat as well. We stand and lift up our hands for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let's stand together as we finish our service tonight. Father, we just want to thank you that tonight for each one of us, we can know that joy that can only be found in you. And Father, the beginning of that joy comes as we acknowledge you as our Lord, as we acknowledge Jesus as our Savior who died for us, and as we again just put our trust in you and give our lives to you. 
in total submission, as we remember tonight that we're saved, as we remember that you love us, as we remember that you'll always be with us and never, ever let us go. Lord, may your people know the blessing of living with you as Lord. May they know the true joy that comes through that. We pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.